We continue on our series through the book of Exodus. I just want to remind you what we've, uh, what we've seen over the past few weeks. And even remind you maybe why it is that we're going through this book. Exodus, which if you're not familiar with the Bible, is the, is the second book in the Bible. And it is the story of how God rescues his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But most often our minds tend to stop there, right? We remember, oh yeah, getting out of Egypt. That's what Exodus is all about. But there's, there's actually a whole lot more to the book. Uh, and this is where maybe it bears the most, most correspondence with us. Uh, maybe all, too often we tend to think of, oh, well, this is, uh, this is my story, right? That, that God has rescued me out of slavery. Uh, and one day, someday, we will reach the promised land. And for most of us, maybe we hope that that'll be a really short trip. But if you've uh, lived long enough or if you've walked with the Lord long enough, you know that the journey from... Red Sea salvation to promised land is not a short trip. And what, we saw, what we've seen over the past few weeks is Israel gets on the other side of the Red Sea and begins working their way through the wilderness to eventually get to Mount Sinai where they will meet with God face to face, sort of, more like face to flame, right? Uh, before they get there, they endure a number of hard trials. And here's why. Israel has seen God's work to save them. They must now trust God's work to keep them. And that may be far harder. They've seen what God can do to bring them out of slavery. But now we see just how much they struggle and really how much we struggle to trust God to keep us. And so that's where we come to in Exodus uh, chapter 17, at the end of chapter 17. What we've seen so far is that Israel has tested God, right? What they've, what they've done at several points, whether it was at the Red Sea or then after the Red Sea uh, and then out in the wilderness, they keep testing God. They keep, as it were, challenging him in unbelief. So their, their posture towards God is not, is not this. It's not... Okay, Lord, there's no water here for us to drink, but we trust you. We trust, you're just going to take care of us. And so, Lord, we just we lean on you and pray to provide water. No, that is not their response. Their response, which looks a lot maybe like my response, is, what are you doing, God? I mean, you brought us out here. Did you bring us out here to kill us? That's what, you, that's what it sure looks like to us. What do you think, God? Moses, what are you doing, right? They're challenging God in unbelief. They're testing God is the word that's used. They're putting God on trial, as it were. But there's another trying that's going on here. Someone else is doing some testing, and it's actually God himself. That's what Psalm 87 tells us, or Psalm 81, 7 tells us that God actually is the one who's proving his people. Right, what he's doing in the midst of these trials, and this is why, this is why God brings trials into our lives, okay? Because here's what trials do. They take our hearts and they wring them out, right? They, they, they squeeze them so that what's really in there begins to be pressed out. And if you're anything like me, and I think you are, when your heart gets wringed out, 
what comes out is not flowers and roses, right? Jesus would tell his opponents uh, when they would, they, uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day challenged them. They said, hey, how come your disciples don't wash, your, wash their hands and go through all these ritual cleansings? Jesus says, guys, you're idiots. What, what defiles a person is not what comes from outside of them. What defiles a person comes from inside of them. And so this is what God is doing in trials, right? It's like he's putting your heart in a vice grip so that you can see what exactly it is that's in there. And what Israel has been enduring over their, their, their brief time in the wilderness, every time that they're pressed, every time that they're tried, they complain and they grumble. What God is doing is he's revealing their unbelief and he's revealing our unbelief. Now, why does God do that? Is God mean? Does he like putting up with obstinate people? Right? Now, the answer to that second question may, in fact, be yes. But is God mean? Is that, is that why he continues to try his people to bring them into difficult circumstances? The answer is no. The reason that God tries his people is so that we will see our lack of trust in him and fall back again into his grace, that we will lean into him and trust him, right? God is revealing our lack of faith. God is revealing our shortcomings so that we will trust him. And that's no different today. Uh, when we get to Exodus chapter 17, we're going to start reading at verse 8. Give attention to God's word. Exodus 17, verse 8. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Uh, it should be page number 59 is where you'll find this passage. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. God in heaven, as we come to your word, Lord, we pray that you would open blind eyes, that you would unstop deaf ears, that you would remove hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh, God, that would beat for you and be soft towards you, Lord, that we would listen to you, that we would see you here in your word. Lord, would you help us to understand it, help us to understand what this battle with Amalek has to do with us, and most importantly, what it means uh, for us as we try to follow Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. 
And so this is Israel's first external battle. Um, up until this point, their war has been the war within. Right. In fact, most of the battles that they fought in the wilderness have not been with external enemies, but with internal enemies, their own hearts, their own unbelief, their own lack of trusting in the Lord. But now, now for the first time, we have an enemy from the outside. And so here's what we're going to see as we look at this passage. That victory comes from God and we could even say victory comes from God alone. That he is the winner. He is the one who deserves the credit for winning the battle, our battles. But at the same time that God uses weak but trusting people. So victory comes from God through weak but trusting people. And we're going to unpack this in, in three ways. First, we need to, we need to fight. That the life of faith is actually a fighting life. There is effort Involved, And we're going to talk about that. Second, we need each other. Not only, we, we don't fight this fight of faith alone. We don't go into battle alone. We have each other. In fact, we need each other. And then finally, we need to trust the God who wins for us. We need to fight. We need each other. And we need to trust the God who wins for us. We need to fight. Have you ever, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, when it rains, it pours. Well, that's probably how Israel feels at this moment. They're still at Rephidim, which if you were here last week, means they're still in the place where there was no water. And they grumbled against Moses, and God told Moses to go strike the rock, and water poured out from the rock to satisfy their thirst. It, their, their thirst. It, it satisfied the people. It satisfied their livestock. You can imagine just how much water was there that God provided. Uh, but then there's a name that comes with that place. It's called Massa and Meribah. Uh, striving and quarreling. Right. That's that's the name of this miraculous fountain. Israel will forever remember this place as the place where they tested the Lord, where they groaned against the Lord. But he provided for them anyway. And so here they are weary, catching their breath, getting uh, getting their thirst quenched for the first time. And then then an enemy comes, then Amalek rides up to do battle. And so it's almost kind of, you kind of want to say, hey, can we just get a little bit of space, right? Can we just can we just chill for just a second here by the spring before we have to do anything else? But that's often the way that uh, the life of faith works, right? There's sometimes there's not a break. Sometimes there's not a space. Oftentimes God provides miraculously only to lead us into battle the next day. In fact, his miraculous provision is for the battle. And so that's no doubt the way that Israel is feeling. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, remember this too. Moses, so Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men. We should remember that Israel has been in slavery. Uh, they are not warriors. They are builders. So this is not a trained army. 
Amalek, what we know from history is that this was a, a semi-nomadic people, which means, of course, they would move around, but that means they also were very used to raiding, right? They were very used to going into battle, as it were, raiding other people. They actually domesticated the camel for this very purpose, because camels, fun fact, camels run faster than horses over short distance, right? So Amalek trained camels so that they could raid other people. And Amalek shows up to fight against an untrained Israelite people, right? We don't even, we don't even know where they get their weapons from. Uh, maybe they got them from uh, the plunder uh, that, they, that the Egyptians gave them when they left. At any rate, the point is this. Israel is going into this battle weary, untrained, uh, and with very few weapons, Right. So when so when Moses says to Joshua, go choose some men. Grab all the guys in their 20s and 30s that can fog a mirror and hold something sharp. Right. This is not a well-trained fighting force. These are not commandos. They are being thrown into this battle. Joshua Moses tells Joshua to go into the battle and to fight. Israel is not battle ready They're they're homeless, and by and large, they are defenseless. Here's what, here's what more we learn about Amalek from Deuteronomy 25. Moses later would say this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. So here's how Amalek goes into battle with Israel. Here's how, here's how it begins. They don't go for the full frontal assault. They look for the disabled, the elderly, the sick, the pregnant women, the nursing moms, the children, whoever's lagging at the back of the line, right? It's like, it's like National Geographic. The lions aren't going for the strong ones at the front of the pack. They cut, they're cutting off the weakest first. That's how, that's how Amalek goes after Israel. This is the kind of battle, uh, that Israel's being pushed into, uh, and Moses adds this, he did not fear God. In doing this, Amalek seals his fate. He attacks, not only does he attack God's people, but he, but he picks off the low-hanging fruit first. And in this way, God's anger is aroused against Amalek. Uh, and they did not fear God. So, at any rate, God's people have to fight. And fighting is actually a sign of faith. Uh, salvation by grace through faith is not the same as let go and let God. In fact, let go and let God is not biblical theology, right? The, the, Bible, the Bible doesn't often say, I'm not saying always, but the Bible doesn't often say, just, hey, just relax, everything's going to get taken care of. Right. No, oftentimes the life of following the Lord means that you have to fight. And this is not just in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter six. If you have a Bible, a letter in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter six, Paul says this in verse uh, in verses 11 and 12. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So here's the difference. Here's the difference between Old Testament fighting and New Testament fighting. 
Christians are never told to take up the sword against an enemy. In fact, Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away. Right. When Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter makes a move to defend Jesus. And in the process, cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus actually gets on to Peter. He says, put the sword away. This isn't this isn't how the kingdom comes. If I wanted to, I could call the armies of heaven. But this isn't how the kingdom comes. Christianity does not spread at the point of a sword. We've been wrong in our past when we've done that. Christianity is not a warrior's religion in the sense that it converts people by force. Christianity is defined as uh, Christians are defined as being ambassadors of reconciliation, of peace. We are the messengers from the king saying it's time to surrender. And as one of my professors often pointed out, what happens to that messenger who goes into the enemy kingdom and says, hey, it's time to surrender? He usually dies, right? But that is that is Christianity. Uh, That is that is the fight of the fight of faith is not against flesh and blood, Paul says. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's that's where the fight is. So it's not that there's less fight in the Christian life, but the fight is moved into a different direction. It's not against physical enemies. It's against spiritual enemies. And it's a fight against ourselves. Paul says in Romans eight thirteen. Put to death the deeds of the body. We do need to pick up weapons. But they are weapons against ourselves, against our own flesh. The weapons that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6 are things like faith and prayer and the gospel and the word. Those that is how the fight of faith goes. There is a battle raging, but we don't fight it with physical weapons. The enemy, in this case, the enemy may use flesh and blood to carry out his schemes, but flesh and blood are not our enemies. Again, this is no let go and let God. Sometimes Moses comes to Joshua and says, choose men and go fight. And sometimes, Christians, we have to fight. But it is not a fight against flesh and blood. It is a fight against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have to fight. But uh, we also need each other. If you go back to Exodus 18. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. We'll come back to that. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But this is where this is what I want you to notice. Moses's hands grew weary. Even the great and mighty Moses needs help. Right. In fact, the reason Moses's hand keeps going down is because he's tired. Have you ever tried to hold your arm above your head indefinitely? Have you ever tried that holding something? Right? You can't do it. You were not not physically designed to keep your arm above your head. Right? The blood drains out of your arm. It gets tired. Uh, even, Even the most beastly crossfitter 
cannot do this forever. Right? And so that's what Moses is feeling. Moses is weary. His hands keep going down. And so Moses needs help. Aaron and her are up there with him. They see that Moses doesn't look too good, right? So they, they roll the rock over there. They slide it over there and they sit Moses down on it. And then, and then one person on one side and one person on the other, they hold up his elbows so that the staff of God remains in the air. We need each other. We need each other in this fight. Even Moses, the great prophet, the great leader, did not fight alone. We need each other. We need, listen, some of, some of you are Moses. Not like that. Not like the great and powerful Moses, right? But some of you, some of you are weary. And you need help. And you need to ask for help. Right? You need someone else to come alongside of you. Don't, don't suffer in silence. Uh, don't, don't pretend, right, uh, we're Americans, we love stoicism, right, sola bootstrappa. Um, that, that doesn't work. We need, we need errands and we need hers to come along and hold up our elbows and give us somewhere to sit so that we continue, right, so that we can continue in the battle. And then some of you right now are errands and hers, you're in good health. Your arms aren't above your heads. And you can, and you can help. Listen, people aren't going to ask for help. I found time and again that say, hey, listen, I'm here if you need me. People don't... Let's just go ahead and be honest. Right? People don't know how to ask for help. They don't know how to say what they need. And so we need to be good at seeing the need and stepping into it. We need to be good at... At listening for, at looking for the weary, looking for the people that we can come alongside. I don't know if Moses said, hey, Aaron, her, get over here. I need some help. I don't know. But they moved to his need. So also we need to move to each other's needs. And if you don't see it, then ask God. I'm sure he, he will reveal to you a need that you can meet. So some of us are in Moses' position. We're holding on, but we're holding on by a thread. And we need help to keep holding on. And some of us are in the position of Aaron and her. We're, we can come alongside others, but uh, we need to help each other. It says this in verse, at the very end of verse 12. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. That word for steady... Uh, is often translated faithful. Um, Faithful or trustworthy. Usually that word is used in a moral context, right? As in to remain faithful to somebody, as to be trustworthy. This is the only time that it's used of physical activity. So I think this is interesting. Basically what Aaron and her are helping Moses to do is remain faithful. Moses, Moses is holding on to the faith, right? He's, he's trying to steady himself as much as he can. But Aaron and her come along and they help him to remain steadfast. They help him to remain faithful. That's what they're doing. We need each other. We need each other to remain faithful in the fight. But ultimately, the end is this, right? We have to trust the God who wins 
for us. Did you notice that this battle with Amalek actually happens on two fronts? There's, there's a dual nature to it, right? As Joshua goes into the field to battle, Moses says this, I'm going up on the hill with the staff, with God's staff. So as, as Joshua is going into the battle with the sword, Moses is going up the hill to battle with the staff. And in case uh, there's any confusion about which one is more important, all the emphasis on the pas- in the passage falls on the hill and the staff. The victory is won not on the field of battle, but on the hill. The ultimate victory doesn't come. I mean, Joshua has to be there. That is, that is obedience for Joshua. And, and that's something else that's kind of a side point that's interesting about this passage. Everybody has their role to play. What I really wanted to do when I knew this passage was coming up at the same time as officer nominations, what I really wanted to do was to make this passage about elders and deacons and that some people have to fight in the field and some people have to fight on the hill. That's not what this passage is about. But man, it seemed really neat. So anyway, everybody, everybody has their place. Joshua must be on the field of battle with the sword. But Joshua does not win if Moses is not on that hill with the staff. Let's just take a look. Let's just, let's just see what's most important here. Whenever Moses held up his hand, presumably with the staff in it, Israel prevailed. Israel is winning as long as the staff is in the air. But whenever Moses' hand comes down and the staff comes down... Amalek is winning. Now, what does that tell us? One, it tells us that Israel is no match for Amalek. Left to themselves, Israel would be utterly wiped out. Israel's forces are no match for Amalek because Amalek wins every time the staff is down. Amalek would win this battle. Christian, your enemies would win their battle if it was just up to you. If it was just to Israel's sword, Amalek wins every time. So that staff is really important. Now, it's also kind of, this is kind of strange, right? Is, it, is, this, is this like some kind of strange voodoo magic thing? Like, is, is this staff like a magic wand? If you, just, if you just wield it in the right way, you win. But if you wield it in the wrong way, you don't win. Is that what's going on here? No, of course not. God is teaching his people something through this, this whole incident with the staff, Right? He's teaching them that as long as the Lord is in the fight, as long as the people are looking to the Lord, Israel will win. That God is really the one who is fighting for his people. That God is really the one who is winning this battle. The staff is just a symbol. The staff is a tool of God's power. Moses uses it at God's command to do God's work. Joshua's army is not winning this battle. Yahweh is winning this battle. He deserves the glory, which is what brings us to this conclusion. After Amalek is defeated with the sword, the Lord says, tells Moses, I want you to write this down. I want you to remember this forever. Uh, I want you to write it in a book. I want you to recite it in Joshua's hearing. There's a play on words here. Write this down as a memorial. I want you to remember that I will, that nobody will ever remember Amalek. I want you to remember that no one will remember Amalek. That seems kind of harsh. Why? And that's where the, the wording is a little bit 
quirky about verse 16. We're not sure that the, the Hebrew is uncertain and people are kind of all over, not all over the map, but there's a couple different interpretations. Uh, basically, where I come down is this, that because Amalek put out their hand against God's throne, God is against Amalek forever. But that's not even really the most important part. Moses builds an altar. Uh, and we see this in Genesis several times where uh, God does something amazing. And the, one of the people, uh, Abraham, Jacob, they build an altar and they name it. And it's a memorial place. They build an altar and they name it. So this is interesting. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Now, that word banner. Typically, we think, right, of a, either a long sign or maybe if you're, um, if you're a savvy war person, right, maybe you're thinking about a, a flag on the end of a pole. I remember watching a lot of Civil War movies when I was growing up, and you always had the drummer who was signaling what to do, what formation to be in, and there close to the drummer was the flag, right, the, the symbol of whoever was marching. If you go to uh, a museum, you'll see different, different flags for different generals, right? This was where Lee's army was. This is where Jackson's army was and Grant's, right? They all had their, their flag, their standard their rallying point. And that's what this is, right? What, what, what Moses is saying is the Lord is my rallying point. Um, because even going way back, you maybe have seen pictures of Roman armies, right? They would go into battle with this long pole, and at the top of the pole would be the symbol of the empire, right? That's a standard. What's cool about this is that in this case, Yahweh himself is the standard. The Lord himself is the rallying point, right? When Moses sticks his staff up in the air, he is saying, the Lord is with us. Rally to him. Fight for him. He fights for you. And when the standard comes down, Israel loses because they lose sight of the Lord. That's what's going on here. When the Lord's standard is in the air, Israel prevails because she is looking to him for her strength and for her and for her success. But it goes even further. The Lord is my standard. This same word comes up later in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 11. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. In that day, the root of Jesse, that's David's son. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal, as a standard for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. His resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. He will raise a standard, a banner for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. Isaiah picks up this word of battle standard and applies it to the Messiah. He says one day someone's going to come and he will be the standard. He will be the rallying point for God's people. And what do we see in God's immeasurable goodness? He takes this wooden stick, this wooden cross, and he makes it a battle standard for his people.
Because it's on that wooden cross that the Lord himself goes to battle against his enemy. And in the course of that battle, he loses his own life, but he gains victory for all of his people. As long as our eyes are on the standard, we'll be just fine. But it's whenever we lose sight of the standard that we begin to lose. I love that we sang, O love that will not let me go. The last verse is the best. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Jesus is our banner. He is our battle standard, and we can rally to him. Let's pray.